Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Tom Flutterer. Today's scripture reading is John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, which can be found on page 887 in your Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, <clears throat> that's John 3, 1 to 15. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here and just uh, thrilled to be preaching this morning. Uh, if you're new here, uh, I want to welcome you and glad that you're here. And I hope that, that this part of the service is meaningful to you, that you get to interact with Jesus' own words and, and draw something important for your life this morning. All right, so we're in John 3, as, as Tom read for us. So I'd love for you to keep your Bibles open. We're, we're really just going to work through the text this morning, about 15 verses, and we'll just work through it. In this series of sermons, uh, we're looking at various conversations Jesus had one-on-one -on -one with people. So, so th we're, we're avoiding kind of these teaching, teaching times to the crowds or even to the disciples. We're really focusing on one-on-one -on -one conversations Jesus had with different people. And as, as we work through the Gospel of John, which will take us all summer to do that, 
uh, it helps us understand how Jesus relates to us because we will find ourselves in one or more of these characters, absolutely. Uh, we, you know, first time we looked at Nathaniel who was a skeptic, well, many of us are skeptical, so it helps us understand how Jesus relates to us. Uh, we're looking at a religious person this morning. Nicodemus is a very religious person. Many of us are religious, so it helps us understand how Jesus is talking to us. But secondly, it also helps us understand how we can talk to different people. So it's almost like Jesus is training us through these accounts to communicate with people in various circumstances and, and, and different personalities and different experiences and different temperaments. This helps us learn how to communicate to others as Jesus uh, did in his time uh, on earth. And so this, today's text hits both of those aspects pretty hard, both as Jesus talks to us and as we can talk to others like Nicodemus. So it's a famous conversation with Nicodemus, and the subject of the conversation is the new birth. The new birth. We'll be talking about that. Let me introduce this subject by telling you a little bit about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. He's a key leader of the 18th century Great Awakening, both in Great Britain and, and in the colonies in the United States at that time. Uh, this is what was said about George Whitfield. I, I love this story. Uh, people said that he could bring women to tears by simply uttering the word Mesopotamia. People would just, you laugh. See, when I say Mesopotamia, people laugh. When Whitfield said that, people would weep. It's just a, a man of remarkable uh, um, gifts as an orator, as a, as a preacher. Now, what you may not know about him is that as famous as he was a preacher in his time, and as popular as he was, as, as great an appeal as he had, he was banned from most of the pulpits in the Church of England, which was the official church. So if you had a church... It was the Church of England, and he was banned from most of those pulpits. Only four pulpits were open to him in London, this great city of London, uh, 1700s. Only four churches would allow him to come and speak, which is why he spoke outside in the open air. And so we, uh, uh, we hear all these great stories of people getting converted in the fields. You know, he would speak to sometimes 10,000 people. It's, a, it's a, amazing. He's a very remarkable, gifted man. Uh, to be able to do that, and people could hear him, you know, thousands of people. But the pulpits were close to him for one specific reason, is because he preached this message of conversion to Christ. He preached that everyone must be converted to Christ, including the good Anglicans that were coming to those churches, including sometimes the priests and the pastors that were in those churches. And so uh, so people didn't like him very much for for that reason. And so one time... Somebody came up to him and said, uh, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep insisting on preaching about the new birth? That's his topic. He just always talked about that. Evangelistic preacher. And he said, he answered with a quote from our text, from John 3. He said, because you must be born again. You must be born again. In his mind, in his worldview, this was such an important topic that to stop talking about it would be not giving people the most relevant and important information they need. Jesus said, you must be born again. And this is the, the, the passage that phrase comes from in this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And we will see how important it is in Jesus' own words 
this idea and this experience of the new birth, being born again, being born from above, being transformed spiritually by God himself. I know there are a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings, especially in our culture. When you say born again, it, it has all sorts of connotations to that. We need to hear what Jesus says about that. So we want to build our understanding of the, of the subject on Jesus' own words, and that's our plan for this morning. So I, I really want to work through the text, but for the sake of some structure, I'm going to divide it into three parts. There are three exchanges that happen here. Each of those exchanges, so Nicodemus says something, Jesus responds, then Nicodemus says something again, Jesus responds. That happens three times in the text. And each time, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. So each of those exchanges has this phrase where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, or, or literally, amen and amen. Now, Jesus is saying this is very, very important. So each of those exchanges contains a very important truth that we need to wrestle with this morning. Jesus wants us to know that what he's saying is very, very important. And so that's what we're going to be doing. So three exchanges here. Let's start with the first one, and that's verses 1 through 3, the first exchange. Uh, Let me read the first two verses. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this man comes, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus at night, and he starts asking these questions. He's he's engaging Jesus in this conversation. First of all, what do we know about Nicodemus? Who is this, this person? John tells us four things about him, four things in our text right here, about Nicodemus that help us understand where he's coming from. Why is he asking these questions? Why is he so puzzled at Jesus' answers? Number one, we know that he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were, uh, it was a religious party, a religious organization. Uh, These were the most holy people of the time. These were people that were very conservative, morally and socially and religiously. Uh, They were concerned with personal purity and righteousness. So they had all these different things in their lives, the rules and regulations and rituals that controlled their behavior. And in their mindset, you had to be pure to be accepted by God. Pure meaning you couldn't be defiled, you couldn't be unclean ritually, which is why they avoided all sorts of things. So, So they avoided touching any dead body, for example, or being even close to a dead body. That, that would make you ritually unclean and thus unacceptable to God. They, they avoided uh, lepers, for example. So people with diseases, you know, they would make them unclean, so they would avoid them and never touch them. They avoided Gentiles, non-Jews, because those were unclean people. Those were not righteous people. <clears throat> so they lived their lives in avoidance of unclean things and people as to make themselves acceptable to God. Uh, There were many ritual washings in their lives because if you did, by accident, make yourself unclean, there were remedies. You'd have to wash yourself in a specific way, almost like a baptism again, uh, to make yourself acceptable to God. So Nicodemus was a deeply religious person. We, We need to get this. He was a deeply religious person. His life was run by religion. 
Number two, second fact uh, we know John tells us, he was a ruler of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews. He was one of the 17 members, 17 members in all of Judea, of the ruling council. It was called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, you know, later in the story, that's the body that condemns Jesus and pronounces him guilty. So he's one of the 17 members of that ruling body, ruling organization. That's the highest level of Jewish authority. Rome still ruled, and so they were under Roman authority. They couldn't do everything they wanted to do, but they could do as much as any Jewish leader could at that time. So Nicodemus was a very successful man. He made it all the way to the top, one of the 17 top officials, top rulers in the land. Number three... He was the teacher of Israel. So later on, Jesus says, how do you not understand that you're the teacher of Israel? It's it's a technical term. He, He is not just a teacher of any sort. He is the teacher of Israel. He is the religious expert. He is a scholar in in the Bible field. He knows the scriptures. He studies his life. In his life, he studies the Bible. And so he becomes a religious expert. Uh, he, when, when Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel, it's like he's saying, you have the degree. You have the theological degree. You have the ordination. You are an acknowledged authority on the Bible and all things religious. So Nicodemus was a highly educated person. So he was very religious. He was very successful. And he was highly educated. And yet, here's the fourth fact. He was in the dark. He was in the dark. Because this is John writing, and we know John is highly symbolic in his writings. He loves the metaphors. He loves the illustrations. He loves to set contrast in his writing. Um, This is the same man that that wrote Revelation that we're still trying to figure out, right, what what the contrasts and the analogies and illustrations are. But he he deals with symbols. and, And because of this is John... When he says Nicodemus came at night, it's important to us. Is it a historical detail? Yes. Nicodemus really did come at night for whatever reason. Maybe he wanted a longer time with Jesus. Maybe he was afraid of what other people would think. We're not sure. But John is putting that detail in specifically to let us know that he is in spiritual darkness. Later on in the passage, he'll talk about the light and darkness, how the darkness rejects the light of Christ. Well, Nicodemus comes at night because he is spiritually in the dark. He is lost spiritually. One commentator says, Doubtless Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, meaning that he really did come at that time. This is a historical detail. But his own night was blacker than he knew. Of course, that is the focus of Jesus' responses to Nicodemus as the conversation goes on, as we will see, Jesus keeps pointing to the fact that Nicodemus doesn't know what he's talking about. He's in the dark. So this man, this highly educated, successful religious person who's nonetheless in the dark spiritually, comes to Jesus and says, teacher or rabbi, which is an expression of respect because here's this young Galilean miracle worker And here's an accepted and respected authority on all things religious. They meet, right? Nicodemus gives Jesus respect. He says, Rabbi, teacher, we know that based on what we have seen on these miracles, the signs that you have performed, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God. That God is working through you. That there's something special about you. Because there's no other way to interpret the things that you've done other than saying God is somehow at work through you. Now notice Nicodemus says, we know. Now who, who is he talking on behalf of? There's nobody else there as far as we know. I think he's talking on behalf of the religious establishment. He's speaking on behalf of the other religious leaders and, and other leaders of the land. They can no longer ignore Jesus, so maybe they can recruit him. The point here is Nicodemus is coming to make a deal with Jesus. He's saying, he's coming and saying, I'm a teacher, you're a teacher, maybe we can work together. Because we know, you know, me and all my friends, all, all the respected authorities on these kind of things, we know, we have discerned that there's something special about you. So maybe we can all work together. I mean, we're all about the kingdom of God. Of course, we all want the same thing. We want God to be glorified. We want people to live righteous lives. And uh, you seem to have some power in this. And maybe we can work together. Here's my illustration that, like most of my illustrations, will only make sense to two of you, Okay. I'm hoping that it's different too every time, that eventually in the course of a year I cover most of you. Um, But last year, uh, Kevin Durant, who's a basketball player, signed with the Golden State Warriors. Before then, he was playing for Oklahoma City, and uh, the Oklahoma City thundered their team. They lost to the Warriors in the playoffs, and then right after that, when the playoffs were done, He signs with the team that that beat him. I imagine that the conversation between whoever was speaking on behalf of the Golden State Warriors and then when trying to recruit Kevin Durant was similar to what we see here with Nicodemus and Jesus. Somebody came to him and said, we know you're a very good basketball player. We've seen you. you Not as good as us, of course. We beat you, as you remember. But nonetheless, you're very good. And we know, we've noticed, we, we, we were watching you. Would you like to join forces? We could use some help. You could use a ring. Maybe we can work together. I imagine that's a similar conversation that's happening here. Nicodemus comes and says, we know. You're very good. And so would you like to join us? Can we work together? Can we put our efforts together and bring the kingdom of God, perhaps? Now, the way Jesus responds to that reveals that Jesus has a very different idea of the kingdom of God than Nicodemus does. Jesus says, this is verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, again, this is very important what I'm saying to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, or another way to translate it, born from above, I think there's a double meaning here, I think John is, again, playing with us with double meanings here, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Nicodemus, how could you know anything about the things of God or the kingdom of God if you have not been born again? Nicodemus says, we saw the signs, right? We saw what you did, Jesus, and we concluded that you are about God's kingdom. And Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom unless... You've been transformed by God, made new, born again, born from above. If this hasn't happened to you, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
Now, this is a radical statement. Remember who Nicodemus is. He's coming on behalf of the establishment. This is the world championship team coming to you and recruiting you. And he comes to Jesus and he says, we know, we have seen things. And Jesus says, you can't see anything about God because you haven't been born again. Your spiritual state prevents you from from knowing anything about God and his kingdom. Radical statement. To one of the most religious men, one of the most successful men, one of the most educated men, he says, you're in the dark. You're blind. You can't see. You have committed your life to the study of a field that you remain absolutely ignorant in. (laughs) That's what he's saying. saying all your life, You've been studying religious things and you know nothing about them. You don't know anything true about religion. Jesus says, you have committed your life to rigidly and meticulously cultivating ritual purity, remaining clean before God, so you can be acceptable to God. And yet, guess what? God doesn't look at that. (laughs) That doesn't matter to God. So all your life you've been doing this and Jesus said, you're blind, you don't know what you're talking about. You have achieved the very top of Israel's political hierarchy. And let's assume for good reasons, in hopes of bringing the kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus says, you don't even know what this kingdom is. You don't even understand what this kingdom is. What you need, Nicodemus, is a complete transformation. You need to become a totally different person, like a newborn baby to even begin to see the kingdom of God so we can actually have an intelligent conversation about it. It's a radical statement to Nicodemus. Imagine, imagine that. Now, this is not only radical for Nicodemus, we understand why it is radical for him, but it's radical for everyone. Jesus says that the reality of God, that to see God, to understand anything about God and his things and his reality and his work, his rule, one must be completely reborn. Most of us find this idea of being completely reborn, born again, changed, transformed, categorically, utterly transformed. We find that idea foreign to us. Um, Only those whose lives have been destroyed who hit bottom, who have lost everything, actually welcome this idea. Everybody else doesn't really get it. You have to see your life completely destroyed so that you would start considering this the possibility of a total change, of a total rebirth. See, none of us really want to be totally changed. All of us want change to a certain degree, but all of us believe there are things about my life that are right, There are things about my life that are good. There are things that I have done well. And so when Jesus says, to get to God, you have to be completely transformed like a new baby. You need to start over again. We say, it's too much, too radical. Unless you're at a point in your life where everything has fallen apart, and then you welcome that idea. But for how long? I I remember when we were living in Chicago and serving in Chicago, uh, we would pretty regularly get people come into our church that were right in the midst of their recovery from alcohol addiction or drug addiction. Um, in fact, there were there are certain places in the city that 
we somehow organically connected with and we would get people from specific places. And, and people would come, and I remember that first maybe two, three weeks, there's just this great openness to everything spiritual, any suggestion. Uh, they would do anything you ask them to do. They would come and volunteer for anything. I remember we were, we were repainting the church and People would come that had nothing to do with the church. It's like first Sunday, and on Monday they would come pay in the church because they were so eager to, to serve and to experience God. Now, that's typically people who had experienced a, a tremendous uh, trauma in their lives. They lost everything. Addiction cost them everything. So finally they're, they're trying to rebuild their life, and they're realizing they need a complete transformation because whatever they did, everything they did didn't work. And for a couple, three weeks, they're, they're open to this idea of a complete transformation, new birth, and, and, and when you talk to them about the gospel, they're, they're welcome in it. And then, most likely, in most cases, not always, but in most cases, I've noticed this pattern, that once their life, lives begin to, uh, to improve, even just a little bit, once they felt that they had a plan of recovery and it was working, once they felt that things were getting better, they would not be as open to this idea of a complete transformation. Now, they still wanted to change, but when you talk to them about new birth or God's work in your life that completely destroys the old man and rebuilds the new man, that was not something they were willing to go along with anymore. Why? They felt that they were getting, again, in control of their lives. That they were doing some things, there were accomplishments, there were good, maybe they were minimal, but they were good things in life. And to accept this idea of a complete transformation, starting over, just seemed ridiculous to them and to the rest of the world. It's hard for us to accept that the only way for us to be accepted with God is we have to be born again, complete transformation, become a new baby, reject everything that happened. The old has to be completely gone, and the new has to come. Everything new has to happen for us to be in God's kingdom, to even see God's kingdom, to even understand we need this complete transformation. We are all in need of the same thing. If Jesus is able to say to Nicodemus, this religious man, educated man, successful man, right? He's at the top of his game. This, Nicodemus has achieved everything that most of us are trying to achieve in our lives. He's got it. And at this point, he's probably an older man, because to be at that council to, to get so far up, you kind of needed time to work the system. So he's probably an older man, and he's got everything together. He, he's done everything well. This is a good person. This is a religious person. This is a smart person. He's got everything, and Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You need this transformation. If he needs that transformation, all of us need that transformation. None of us can say, Jesus, I have come this far, now just push me a little bit, get me all the way. None of us can say that. Because Nicodemus has gone as far as you can, in a good way. And yet Jesus says, you don't understand what we're talking about here. You must be born again. If we are to experience God's kingdom or his presence, his rule, his reality, we must be born again. That's a challenge to all of us 
to realize we're all on the same level. It doesn't matter whether you're an addict or whether you're homeless or whether you have a nice home or whether you have a great job, whether you're healthy or ill. It doesn't matter, according to Jesus. The solution is we all must be born again if we are to experience God at all. Here's another point of application. Do you recognize that the greatest need of people around you, people in your life, is this new birth, is this new life, is this complete transformation, this work of God from above? Is that how you see the world around you? When you think about people, when you pray for people, are you praying for this kind of transformation? I'll I'll make it very relevant, Mother's Day. Are you praying like that for your children? It's fine to pray that they would marry well. It's fine to pray that they would get good education. It's fine to pray for their physical health. Those are all good things to be praying for. But according to Jesus... None of those things really matter unless they are born again. Now, they've been born once. That's why you have all those other prayer concerns. But are they born again? As you pray for your kids, as you pray for your neighbors, as you pray for your coworkers, your relatives, your friends, is that at the top of your list? This would be consistent with what Jesus says to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Okay, let's come to the second exchange. The first exchange, Nicodemus says, we know, let's work together. Jesus says, you don't understand anything that you're talking about. You must be born again. This is how J.C. Ryle uh, reflects on this kind of change that Jesus is promoting here, demanding here for the kingdom of God. Ryle says, the change which our Lord here declares needful to salvation is evidently no slight or superficial one. It is not merely reformation or amendment or moral change or outward alteration of life. It is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection. It's a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts of a new principle from above. It is the calling into existence of a new creature with a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, and new fears. All this, and nothing less than this, is implied when our Lord declares that we all need a new birth. This is what Nicodemus is hearing from Jesus. And to him it sounds too radical. Nicodemus is not buying it. And so he says to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old, like me? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's his response to Jesus saying, Everybody must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, How can that happen? How can that kind of change happen? I don't think he's taken Jesus too literally and thinks that Jesus is talking about physical birth when Jesus is talking about spiritual birth. I don't think Nicodemus is is doing that. I think what he's doing is he's looking at Jesus' words from his worldview 
And he has a very natural worldview. Nicodemus has committed his life to developing patterns, habits, structures, following rules. And over time, he became who he is now. And when Jesus says, you must be born again like a baby, Nicodemus says, how can that possibly happen? He said, I am what I am. We don't change like that. People don't change like that, that they become like a new baby, and that their character, their taste, their fears, all of a sudden they're all different. Nicodemus is thinking in natural terms. This is what he's seen in his life. This is what he has experienced in his life. It's not literal, but it's natural. His worldview doesn't allow for the possibility of this kind of a change. But of course, Jesus doesn't mean a natural change as Nicodemus sees it. Jesus means something supernatural. Verse 5, Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, again, very important here, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I'll return to the water and Spirit in a little bit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, flesh produces flesh. Natural produces natural. That's Nicodemus's world. Yes, you can wash yourself clean at certain times, at certain times in certain ways, and you will be clean. You can Discipline yourself into becoming righteous in this way. You can do that. That's how this world works. But Jesus is not talking about that kind of natural change. He's saying, what I'm talking about is this, this change from another realm. There's, there's an invasion from another realm that changes you. Something happens supernaturally, miraculously, that changes you completely. The Spirit produces spiritual changes. Flesh produces flesh, apples produce apples, pears produce pears, spirit produces spiritual change. And Jesus says what we're talking about here is the direct influence of the Holy Spirit of God that transforms you. The power comes from the Spirit of God, from God himself. We're not talking about, okay, back to the drawing board, figure out disciplines, figure out rules, figure out patterns of change, and then 20 years later we'll see if it works. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to come into your life and he will utterly transform you and you will get a new character, new personality, new fears, new hopes. Everything is going to be new because the Spirit will change you. I think there's uh, a storm brewing or something happening and, and the wind is blowing. I think Jesus has taken that opportunity to say it's like the wind. It's like a gust of wind. It comes from another realm. It influences you. It doesn't come from within. It comes from outside. Something happens. It's like the wind that just comes in. And you don't know. You can predict it. You know where it comes from. And as much as scientists tell us they can figure out the patterns, they still can't apply it to predicting weather. Still not working very well. Still not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. And as much as we can find the patterns, it's still an unpredictable thing. It's a weird thing that just happens outside of our realm. Jesus says it's like the wind. It just comes and goes. And you can see the effects of it, of course. You can see the sound. You can see what the wind does, but you can't see the wind. That's how the Spirit works. 
He comes. He changes you. You can see the changes. You can't control it. It's not a natural thing. It's not a thing that you can lock into rules and patterns and rituals. The Spirit works sovereignly in your life, and He produces real change in you. Here's the application for us. Jesus says that real radical change is possible, but it comes through supernatural means. It comes through the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus says, how can an old man like me change? It's not like I can go back and start over. It's not like I can be born again and start over. He's saying, that doesn't sound right to me. Jesus says, it's possible if the Holy Spirit is involved. Supernaturally, whether young or old, it doesn't matter, the Spirit can change you into a different person. The question for us today, because most of us, we still live in the same worldview that Nicodemus has, in the natural worldview. The question for us is, do we believe that what Jesus says is true, that supernatural change is possible? Think about a person in your life that's, that's on the wrong trajectory. And you can look at their life, you can say, I know where this is going. And I can't imagine that they would change. I just can't imagine that they would just turn it around. No matter what resources we give them, no matter how many interventions and conversations we have with them, no matter how much love we give them, they're not changing. Which is where it's really tempting to say, people don't change. Because we are who we are. I mean, you can slightly reform yourself. Maybe you can put some safeguards in your life so you don't hurt yourself too much, but we don't really change. Jesus says, we do, but it's the Spirit who changes us. It's not me who's changing myself, but it's the Spirit who can change me. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you will pray for the spiritual births of people around, around you in your life. That will be at the top of your list. If you believe that Jesus can do that, you must believe this because Jesus has changed you, right? At the very least, we can go back to our own lives and say, I am not, if you're a believer, I'm not the same person that I was. You're not the same person that you were. And conversions look differently. You have the Samaritan woman in the next chapter, which we'll be looking at next week, that changes like that, just runs, right, with this message. And you have Nicodemus, it takes the rest of the book of John for him to change. It doesn't happen quickly, but the transformation is remarkable. So however that happened with you, gradually or quickly, if you have been changed, you must believe the Holy Spirit did that. And if he did that for you, he can do that for anybody in your life. He can keep doing it in your life as well. Not only do we believe that the Holy Spirit can convert people, anybody, a religious person like Nicodemus or an irreligious person, doesn't matter, he can convert anybody. We also believe that he can continue to change us. Let me take a guess here that some of us have come to church burdened with something in your life. And what your heart is saying, what your heart is telling you is, there's no way this situation is going to be resolved. There's no way I can change. There's no way I can stop doing this or start doing that. You may feel guilt, but that often doesn't bring hope into your life. And you might be coming to church and saying, come on, change. I've tried. I've tried everything. It doesn't work. I don't change. I keep going back to the same sin. Well, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit can change you. 
The question is whether you believe it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that there's power of God that's now given to you for your change and for the change of other people in your life? That's, that's true. That's what Scripture says. Jesus is operating from a different worldview, not, not like Nicodemus. Nicodemus thinks of things naturally. Jesus thinks of things naturally and supernaturally. If you are struggling this morning and you just, you just can't get over a particular sin, a particular struggle in your life, what you need to hear from the gospel, from scripture, is that God is committed to change you. God himself is committed to change you. God has said, I'm going to be on your side and I'm going to give you all the resources I have to change you. You have no reason to think it's not going to change unless you get stuck in the natural worldview. This is what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus. He's breaking him out of that worldview. And he's saying, sure, all men don't change. But people under the influence of the Holy Spirit change, whether you're old or young. We have God on our side. That's the second truth that Jesus communicates in the second exchange. And now the final exchange, the third exchange, verse 9. Now, Nicodemus is still skeptical. He's reluctant to really commit to these ideas. He's still operating out of his worldview. Verse 9, he says, how can these things be? Not sure that he believes in this supernatural change coming from the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says to him. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, again, very important here, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I think Jesus is a little bit making fun of Nicodemus here. Nicodemus came and said, we know. Jesus says, we speak of things we know. There's a little bit of a, of, of a joke here happening. Jesus says, oh, you came like you coming from this great group of people who know everything. Let me tell you, we also know. Let me tell you where we come from. Heaven, that spiritual realm, the kingdom of God, we know. We speak of things that we understand, unlike you. Jesus is telling him, I can tell you about these things because I know them. From my own experience. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says, so far we're talking about things you should be able to understand. This new birth, you should be able to understand that. I don't even want to get into other things. If you don't get this, how can you get other stuff? He says that Nicodemus... He's expecting Nicodemus to understand what he's talking about. One big reason here is that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He knows the scriptures. And when, when Jesus says, this is going back to verse 5, so I think in verse 5 Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can it be? Jesus says, how can you not understand that? You know the scriptures. This is a direct direct reference to another passage of Scripture, namely Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27, which is what we read for call to worship. This is the verse that Nicodemus knew. 
Undoubtedly, he studied it. It's an important verse in Scripture. He may have even had it memorized. And so Jesus says, you need to understand, you should understand what I'm talking about because I'm talking about earthly things, things that happen here that God has predicted that you know from Scripture. So let's read that passage together. Um, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Follow me as I read it. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is God's promise to his people from the book of Ezekiel, from a prophetic book, very familiar to Nicodemus and others in Israel. God is saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a living heart, a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's saying, Nicodemus, you know the verse. You know the passage. Why are you asking how can these things be if you know how God works? God told us how he works with us. He brings the supernatural change into our lives through his Holy Spirit. He promises a new heart. He promises that we will want to obey his law. Not just structure your life with rules and regulations so that you have to do what God demands. He's saying, I'll make a change in your heart that you will want to do that. That you will follow my statutes, you will follow my rules, you will rejoice in my law. I'll give you a new heart, new desires, new hopes, new fears. I will cleanse you from your sin. Holy Spirit, like water, is going to come down on you and change you. You used to be dirty. Remember, this is a man consumed with spiritual and, and, and ritual uncleanness. And Jesus is taking him right to the verse that deals with that. I need to make something, something clear here. There's a lot of confusion about the verse 5 when Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is the water reference? We understand the Spirit. Unless you're born spiritually, conversion, you cannot enter this, the kingdom of God. That makes sense. But what about the water? Some people look at that and say, well, that probably refers to the physical birth, the physical life. As a, a baby is born, as, as the, the water breaks, right, and the baby is born. I, I have a lot of Mother's Day references today. So, Baby is born, so it's the physical birth. As the baby is born physically, that's the first birth. And then spiritual birth, birth from the Spirit, that's what Jesus is talking about. Unless you're born physically and spiritually, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Another version, another interpretation is it's talking about baptism. Unless you're born of water, unless you go into the water and you experience the Christian baptism, you commit your life to Christ, you die with him, you rise with him symbolically in the water, and you're born of the Spirit, the spiritual transformation, you cannot enter the spirit of God, the kingdom of God. I don't think either of those interpretations is, is right. I think the best way to take it is, is to recognize that Jesus is referring to Ezekiel 36. And he's telling Nicodemus, you need to understand that, which Nicodemus certainly didn't understand baptism. It hasn't really been developed yet. And there's no evidence that, that water is connected with the physical birth of that time. So what we're left with is Jesus is saying, you, need, you, understand, you, you should understand that because you know the passage. You know Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, water is a symbol of cleansing by the Holy Spirit. In that passage, God says... It's like I will finally wash you with my spirit. You've been trying to keep yourself ritually clean. 
But there will be a time when the Spirit will come and He will actually make you clean, like water, but better. So when Jesus says, and to, let me paraphrase verse 5, I think that's what He means. He says, unless one is born of the Spirit, which is like being cleansed by the water of Ezekiel 36, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The water and the Spirit are parallel. They're not opposite. They're not two births. It's one birth that's characterized by a, the Spirit's work that's like water, washing you clean, making you acceptable to God. Jesus expects Nicodemus to get this reference, to understand that, since he is well-versed in the Bible. And then he says, if you can't understand this, based on the clear revelation in Ezekiel 36, how can I tell you anything new? Now, the second reason why Nicodemus should accept this teaching about the new birth is that it's Jesus who's teaching that, and Jesus has authority because he came from heaven to tell us these things. Not only it's in the Bible and the book, but here's the person of Jesus with unique authority who's teaching it. And he says, Jesus says, I know what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're talking about, Nicodemus. You're in the dark. I know what I'm talking about. I come from the realm of the supernatural. I come from heaven. You can trust me because I know what I'm saying. Jesus himself went through this radical, dramatic change. He came from heaven, from the realm of God's rule, the realm of God's presence, um, unassaulted by sin, right? He, he comes and he becomes a human being. God becomes human. So when Jesus says, you must be born again, he knows what he's talking about because he was born again. He completely transformed. Jesus became something different. He remained God, but he became human being. That birth that happened, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on Mary that produces this child, not in natural ways, in supernatural ways, complete transformation happens and God becomes human for us. And Jesus says, I'm talking about a new birth and the possibility and the necessity of the new birth because I know what I'm talking about. I came from heaven, I became human. Jesus does not demand anything from us that he has not himself undergone. He knows exactly what he's talking about, not just because he has authority as God, he has the experience of this new birth, of this complete transformation. Jesus took our nature upon himself so that he could take he could give us his nature so we would be made acceptable to God and be fitted for God's kingdom. Remember, apples produce apples, flesh produces flesh. We cannot go into God's kingdom if we just flesh. Jesus says, let me change you. Let me make you acceptable to God. Let me make you, like, make, present you as if you belong in God's kingdom. Your nature changes, and now you can be in God's kingdom because you're supposed to be there. Do you believe what Jesus says to us, specifically about the possibility of change, but broadly about anything else he tells us, on the basis of who he is and what he has done? Do you trust him 
because he himself experienced all these things on our behalf. So when Jesus says, die to self, pick up your cross, he's talking from personal experience. He did that. He denied himself. He died. He took up a cross. When Jesus talks about sacrifice, he knows what he's talking about. He has sacrificed himself. When Jesus talks about a joyful life with God, he knows what he's talking about because he rejoiced in God. When he tells us to pray, he knows what he's talking about because he prayed. When he tells us about the revelation of God in Scripture, he knew the Scriptures. When he talks about resistant temptation, he has resisted temptation. Everything he tells us to do is something that he has done, that he has experienced, that he went through, and he can speak not just with divine authority, but with human experience of that particular situation. Jesus is not only thinking about the change that happened to him at his birth, he's also anticipating another event that will be utterly transformative for him and for the whole world. This is the culmination of the conversation, and this is where where we're going to end the sermon. Verse 14 and 15. This is how he, he ends the conversation with Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus gives Nicodemus another Bible passage to ponder. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I want to read it. Numbers 29, 4 through 9. It's a story about Israel in the wilderness. There's these venomous snakes that come, and people are dying. They get bitten by snakes, and they die. The Lord, then they they go to Moses, and they say, Save us, pray to God, give us a way out of this. Moses prays and the Lord commands Moses to make a bronze snake, a bronze serpent, like the ones that are crawling around and and hurting people. Put it on a pole and lift it up. This is Numbers 21. Anyone who gets bitten by a snake is commanded to look at the serpent that's lifted up, this bronze statue of a serpent, to look at it, and as they look at it, they are healed and they don't die. If you didn't look, you died. You remained in the natural world, in the natural worldview. If a snake bites you, you die. That's how it works. But the supernatural is breaking in through God's command and through this particular symbol, this particular thing that they made, the bronze statue of a serpent. As it was lifted up, if you looked at it, you were healed. You were saved from the snake. And so Jesus is is telling Nicodemus, remember that story? Of course he remembers the story. This is what's happening now, he's saying. I was transformed at birth, came from heaven, now I'm here, I'm a human being, and yet I'm God. But there will be a time when I will be lifted up. Like that bronze serpent in the wilderness, I will be lifted up on the cross, and if people look at me, if they look at me and believe, they will see the kingdom of God. They will have eternal life. They will know who God is. They will be acceptable to God. Just the way it worked in the wilderness. God provided a means of salvation. God provided a means of healing. And you just look at it and you are healed. 
so it will be with me when I'm on the cross and I'm dying and I'm sacrificing myself. If anybody places their faith in that, in me, and looks at me, they will have life, eternal life, new life, new birth. Carson, a commentator I'm using for this sermon series, says, here is the frankest answer to Nicodemus' question, how can this happen, from verse 9. Nicodemus asks, how can this happen? Jesus frankly responds, the kingdom of God is seen or entered. New birth is experienced and eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. Kingdom of God is seen or entered. New birth is experienced and eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. Like the bronze serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is lifted up on the cross. Anyone looks at him in faith is healed and given a new life in the kingdom. Now, this is the first time in the conversation, which is at the very end of the conversation, that Jesus is telling Nicodemus what can be done. Up until now, he's just describing the supernatural reality that you have no control over. It's like the wind. And now he's saying, to experience this new birth, you must look at the crucified Son of Man. Because that is how God has promised to work. Remember the wilderness. You get bitten by a snake, and you're thinking, what can I do? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. You stay in the natural world, there's nothing you can do. But God provides a means, sovereignly, supernaturally. And you say, okay, if I accept this, I'm saved, I'm healed. Same thing here. What can you do? How can you change? You can't. How can a baby be born? Baby has no control. No baby says, I am being born in full control here. No, right? How is a baby born? Baby is born because a mother gives birth. And by the way, a mother in pain, bleeding, and crying gives birth. Through the suffering of the Savior, through the pain and the bleeding and the crying of our Savior, we are born again by the Holy Spirit. Supernatural. I, I can't do that. I cannot make myself be born again. Just as much as a baby cannot make herself be born. But this, in, in the wilderness, this instrument of death, right, the, the, the serpent, now is transformed into an instrument of life. God says, the same snakes that are biting you, if we just make a bronze image of that, just look at that and you'll be saved. What brought death is now bringing life, the cross of Christ. What brings death to him is bringing life to us. Two more times Nicodemus is mentioned in the Gospel of John, and I'm, I'm going to stop after this, I promise. Chapter 7, he argues with his fellow Pharisees against condemning Jesus. This is John 7, 45 through 52, if you want to do a study of what happens with Nicodemus. He's arguing with others. They're saying, let's condemn him, let's put him to death. He's saying, yeah, but our law says we should listen to him first. And he's kind of shouted down at that point. But the most remarkable thing happens to Nicodemus in John 19. 1938 through 42. Nicodemus, along with another member of the Sanhedrin, another one of the 17, Joseph of Arimathea, ends up burying the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. 
please remember who Nicodemus is. Please keep in mind all those things that, that he is, that he's become. He's, he's part of this ruling council. He's highly educated, incredibly religious person, concerned with ritual purity, never touch a dead body. This is the person that's burying Jesus. I, the way I read the text, it, it seems like they're actually handling the body. They're, they're putting spices and wrapping Jesus up. Not their job. Why is Nicodemus there? He's been transformed. No longer concerned with ritual purity making him acceptable to God. What is he focused on? The dead serpent. (laughs) The corpse of God. The body in the tomb. Savior who died for him and through his suffering and death he's now brought to life. That's the story of Nicodemus. I wonder what he thought. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible to, to get into his mind, right? Knowing as much as we know about him, he's got this body now. He's handling the body. He knows on the third day he's going to have to ritually wash. On the seventh day he's going to have to ritually wash, as any righteous Jew would do. And I wonder if he's washing himself on the third and the seventh day. I wonder if he's thinking about the water of the Holy Spirit washing over him and making him clean, making him acceptable to God. No longer saying, I can do this. I can achieve these things and God will have to accept me. But saying, God has provided a supernatural means, Savior on the cross, power of the Holy Spirit, to make me acceptable to God. And now I can see the kingdom of God. It's, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing conversation. And, and we have to wrestle with these things. And so I'm going to leave you with this. As we come to the table, I'm going to invite you to come. Every Sunday we come to the table of the Lord and we take communion, which are physical means to signal the spiritual, supernatural reality that we are a part of. Just like the water symbolizes the Spirit, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ, the cup symbolizes the new covenant, the offer of grace, the offer of forgiveness in your life with Him. As you consider whether you should come or not to the table, I'd like you to ask yourself whether you have been born again. And if you're saying, how can I change? How can these things be? You look at Jesus. You look at the crucified Savior, the bronze serpent that is able to heal you. You look to him and you say, Holy Spirit, change me. I can't do it. If you have been born again, I encourage you to come to the table You don't have to be part of this church. You don't have to have any other requirements. You just have to know Jesus. You have to be born again. You must be born again. As you come to the table, I encourage you to renew your faith in God who tells us there is a supernatural realm that is broken into your life. The change is possible. The change is promised. That people around you can change. That you can pray in confidence that God can save people. That God can change lives around you. You come in repentance if you didn't believe that. You come in expectation that God will answer your prayers. I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll come forward as we sing. You can take communion right in front and leave, leave the empty cup here in the basket, or you can take it back to your seats if you need more time to meditate and think and repent and confess and wrestle with these truths and pray for the Holy Spirit to change you. You can go back to your seats and do that. Even as we sing, that's fine. 
you're on the balconies, you can just go forward where you are and take communion right there. I just emphasize again, you must be born again. Not just to take communion, but you must be born again. That's the thing. That's, that's all of it. You must be born again through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you are not limited to the world of the spiritual or the natural or the supernatural, but you encompass all those things. You're over all things. Creation is yours, and you are redeeming this world, including us, so that we can see your kingdom, so your kingdom can spread, so we can enter into your kingdom, so we can have eternal life, life that doesn't just pertain to heaven or this realm after death, but begins now and, and, and develops now, and we can live in this new reality of your kingdom even now under your rule and your presence. Father, we are grateful that you are asking us and summoning us to come into that world, that you are a God who offers grace to us and says, I will completely transform you and I will make you suitable for the kingdom. Thank you for Jesus who was born a human being, God becoming human. Two natures in one person. It's an incredible mystery to us but a, a radical transformation for him. And yet he did that for us. And so when he talks about a new birth, he knows what he's talking about. But that's not all he did. He also suffered and died for us. So that we can look at the crucified and in faith accept the offer of new life. And we do so now. I pray, Lord that you will not let us forget that there's also the resurrection of Christ and the power of the resurrection. This power of God has been released and given to us. So as, as we are wrestling with, with the guilt of seeing how we're not as different as we should be, or we're wrestling with the pain of not being able to overcome sin in our lives, I pray that you will impress us today with the truth that we can change because the Holy Spirit can change us, that all of the resources of God are on our side. We don't have to remain in sin. We don't have to remain where we are. We can change because the Holy Spirit changes us. Lord, I pray that even as we come to the table and we take the bread and we take the cup, we will do so in faith. Confessing our own inadequacies, we are babies. Nothing to offer to you. And yet, receiving a tremendous gift, receiving a tremendous power. So we freely confess our weakness, our sin, our brokenness, our despair, and pray for the Holy Spirit to change us even now. Lord, we come to you with different things. Some of us have very specific struggles. Some of us have the general discouragement. Some of us come still thinking that we can kind of do it on our own. Lord, break us out of that mindset. Break us out of that worldview. Let us come to you expecting the Holy Spirit to change us. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do it together in faith in response to God's gift of grace to us.